Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I am Rebecca Loveridge, a barrister at Fountain Court Chambers. On this episode, we are looking at hot topics in the law of privilege. I was joined by Bankim Thanky QC and Tamara Oppenheimer QC. Bankim Thanky QC is head of chambers at Fountain Court and an undoubted expert on the law of privilege. He has appeared in many of the leading authorities in this area, including the Three Rivers litigation, in the Supreme Court in the Prudential case, and in the Court of Appeal in SFO against ENRC. He is also the editor of The Law of Privilege, now in its third edition, one of the leading textbooks on this topic. Tamara Oppenheimer QC is a barrister at Fountain Court and another privilege expert. She has also appeared in many of the leading authorities, including the recent and important decisions of the Court of Appeal in ENRC and Jet2.com against the Civil Aviation Authority, both of which we will be discussing. In this episode, we discuss a range of topics, including the difficult issue of who constitutes the client for the purpose of legal advice privilege, the application of the dominant purpose test for legal advice privilege, and some interesting issues which have arisen recently in respect of waiver. I hope that you enjoy the episode. Hi, Bankim. Hi, Tamara. Thank you very much to both of you for agreeing to participate in this podcast. We're going to look at a few hot topics in the law of privilege, a field in which you are obviously both experts. Uh, Before we do that, can I just ask you both first to introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about your respective practices and what you're working on at the moment. Thank you. So I'm Bankim Thanky. I am um, Head of Chambers at Fountain Court, your Head of Chambers, and I practice in general commercial law. My next case that I'm appearing in is uh, intervening in um, a case called Times Travel in the Supreme Court at the beginning of November, and that raises the issue whether lawful act duress um, exists or not. So quite interesting two days in the Supreme Court at the beginning of November. I practice in other areas of commercial law, such as banking and aviation. And I also edit a textbook uh, on the law of privilege now in its third edition with Oxford University Press, to which both of you are contributors. So that's me. So I'm Tamara Oppenheimer. I have been a tenant in Chambers since 2002. I actually started my career as a solicitor at Allen & Overy and then moved over to the bar. I took silk earlier this year, literally days before the lockdown. I have a fairly typical practice for a fountain court tenant. So that's predominantly large scale commercial litigation, financial services and incorporating some negligence in aviation. I obviously have a passion for the law of privilege, uh, which I'd like to say was ignited when I was Bankim's pupil, when he was still in the middle of Three Rivers. And then my interest and experience in the law of privilege has enabled me to develop my practice a little bit now in the area of commercial crime that really stemmed from involvement in the SFO and ENRC case. So um, I've been instructed in a number of cases involving privilege issues in that sphere I'm currently working on, just on that topic, on a criminal investigation by a prosecuting authority where privilege is being challenged, acting for the corporate. Um, of the more sort of standard fountain court work, I've got a trial coming up in December, acting for a finance house, defending a claim where the borrower is claiming essentially breach of contract uh, following a default on its loan obligations. I continue to have some involvement in aspects of of the ENRC litigation, which I mentioned earlier. So dipping in and out on some privilege issues there. 
And uh, I suppose the last thing to end with, because the, these privilege points are of, sometimes take you into quite some interesting areas. Uh, just during lockdown, I did a hearing in the litigation involving the Barclay brothers and the bugging at the Ritz, which had a privilege issue. So that was quite a fun case to dip into briefly. So that's me. Well, thank you very much, both of you. Uh, the first topic which I wanted to discuss with you is the vexed question of who is the client for the purpose of legal advice privilege. As many of our listeners will be aware, the leading authority on that issue remains the decision of the Court of Appeal in Three Rivers District Council and Bank of England, known as Three Rivers Five, in which Bankham appeared for the Bank of England. And Tamara, you've mentioned that you were a pupil at that time, I think. Uh, Bankham, could you tell us a bit more about the background to that case and what it decided? Yes, so this was the claim by the liquidators of BCCI against the Bank of England, which finally ended after I think I was involved for about 10 years in a glorious triumph in the commercial court where the liquidators finally threw in the towel. But en route to that um, result, which involved the um, governor of the Bank of England coming to court and hugging the Bank of England's leading counsel, en route to that outcome, uh, there were several privilege issues which arose. And Three Rivers Five involved a challenge by the liquidators to the Bank of England asserting privilege over materials preparatory to the Bingham Inquiry by Lord Justice Bingham into the collapse of BCCI. And uh, what the Court of Appeal held in overturning Mr Justice Tomlinson at first instance was that the only entity within the Bank of England entitled to claim privilege in relation to lawyer-client communications was a unit of three people, more or less, that fluctuated over time, but essentially a core of three people uh, who were appointed by the governor of the Bank of England to liaise with Freshfields and to liaise with the Bingham Inquiry itself. That was known as the Bingham Inquiry Unit uh, or the BIU. And those were deemed, that unit was deemed to be the client for the purposes of claiming legal advice privilege. No one else in the Bank of England, their communications were not entitled to legal advice privilege. And infamously, Court of Appeal said that even the governor of the Bank of England, if he was communicating with Freshfields, wouldn't be the client uh, for the purposes of, of claiming legal advice privilege part of the judgment which really raised eyebrows at, at the time. And that case has, has stood more or less, I think, now for 16, 17 years and has been variously interpreted since. But that, in a nutshell, is what Three Rivers Five decided. And in fact, quite soon after that decision in Three Rivers Five, the House of Lords had the opportunity to revisit it in Three Rivers Six, but they declined to do so. Can you explain why that was? Yes, so Three Rivers Six, the liquidators flushed with victory in Three Rivers Five, decided to um, push the envelope and brought an application based on random passages in the Court of Appeals judgment in Three Rivers Five, saying that the only documents over which even communications involving the Bingham Inquiry Unit where privilege could be claimed was advice which was strictly confined to legal rights and obligations of the Bank of England and that everything else was presentational advice, as it were, because the Bingham inquiry wasn't an um, uh, adversarial inquiry, uh, it was a fact-finding inquiry, and that in those circumstances everything else was had the, the, the purpose of uh, best presenting the Bank of England's 
case to the Bingham inquiry and therefore wasn't about uh, legal rights and obligations and wasn't entitled to the assertion of legal advice privilege. And that argument um, succeeded in front of Mr. Justice Tomlinson, who felt obliged to follow various dicta in Three Rivers Five. And that was upheld by Court of Appeal in, in Three Rivers Six. It was a case which raised a lot of eyebrows at the time, even more than Three Rivers Five. And that decision was overturned by the House of Lords in Three Rivers Six, um, which asserted a conventional analysis of what legal advice privilege applied to. Uh, it wasn't confined to advice about strict legal rights and obligations, but the House of Lords basically reaffirmed the previous Court of Appeal decision in a case called Balabel and said that legal advice privilege wasn't strictly confined to advice about black letter law, but what should prudently and sensibly be done in the relevant legal context. So it's a fairly conventional assertion of the law as it had been understood previously. But we, uh, for the Bank of England, raised the Three Rivers Five decision for reappraisal, saying that it was intrinsically bound up with their decision in the Court of Appeals decision in Three Rivers Six. And the House of Lords was seriously tempted to revisit Three Rivers Five. And we got the distinct impression it was unimpressed with aspects of Three Rivers Five. And they allowed interventions by the Bar Council, the Attorney General and the Law Society which showed they took the Three Rivers Five points seriously because that's that's the point on which they were intervening. And this is completely a matter of bar gossip, but as I understand it, they were very divided um, ultimately as to whether to go to Three Rivers Five or not. And as I understand it, they divided um, three, two against um, go, revisiting Three Rivers Five. But if you look at Lord Carswell's decision in Three Rivers Six, he commends Mr. Justice Tomlinson's first instance decision in Three Rivers Five and states expressly that he's not um, to be taken as approving of the Court of Appeal decision in Three Rivers Five, which is fairly pointed. And you can also see that Lord Rogers and Lord Brown are aspects of their judgments which are hard to reconcile with Three Rivers Five. So I think the Bank of England came very close to getting the House of Lords to reconsider Three Rivers Five. But ultimately, the House of Lords felt that Three Rivers Five represented a binding Court of Appeal decision. It didn't strictly arise on the facts and the issues in the appeal in Three Rivers Six. And the House of Lords had also refused permission to appeal in Three Rivers Five. So ultimately, and sadly, they, they declined to, to revisit it. So we're sort of stuck with it. And we'll come on in a moment. Um, tomorrow we'll kick off in a little while dealing with the ANRC and you can see if they were able to uh, certainly at court of appeal level the courts would quite like to overturn three rivers five so just picking up on that you've mentioned ENRC this client question has resurfaced in a number of recent decisions including two decisions of the court of appeal the SFO and ENRC decision and also in jet 2 against the civil aviation authority tomorrow you appeared in both of those cases could you tell us a bit about those decisions and where they leave us on this client question? Sure. I should just say one thing, by the way. Bankham said he was involved in Three Rivers for 10 years. That wasn't the length of my pupillage with him. So ENRC, 
the SFO in that case uh, brought a civil claim under Part 8, challenging ENRC's claims to privilege in respect of documents that ENRC had created in the context of an anticipated criminal investigation by the SFO. And essentially, the issue arose there, this client issue, because certain of the documents that uh, ENRC were claiming privilege over included interview notes, which had been produced by their lawyers, Deckard. There were other documents as well, but we don't need to discuss them for these purposes. Interview notes is, of course, the archetypal situation where this client issue arises because when lawyers are gathering information for various people in the organization, they aren't going to fall within that uh, orthodox interpretation in Three Rivers Five of who constitutes the clients. Now, in ENRC, in which Bank Kim and I, well, and you, Rebecca, we were all involved in the Court of Appeal, obviously ENRC had claimed uh, in respect to the interview notes, privilege in the alternative, legal advice privilege, and in the alternative litigation privilege. And really, the case ended up being, despite our best efforts to put legal advice privilege front and centre, and indeed, I think, Bank Kim, most of your submissions, as I recall, were all focused on legal advice privilege, where where while Rebecca and I beavered away on litigation privilege and we handed up a document dealing with a lot of that. In the end, the Court of Appeal reversing Mrs. Justice Andrews um, in her finding that ENRC couldn't claim privilege. The Court of Appeal decided it effectively all on litigation privilege and the other categories of documents, which were documents produced by ENRC's forensic accountants, those could only have ever been subject to litigation privilege. So that dominated that aspect of the case. But for the interview notes, the Court of Appeal made the decision, reversed Mrs. Justice Andrews on the issue of litigation privilege, so that when they came to discuss whether in the alternative legal advice privilege might apply. That whole part of the judgment was obiter in any event. And then as Bankham has already hinted at, the Court of Appeal came very close. Again, it felt in the hearing, didn't it, as though we, we got close to persuading the Chancellor that there was another way of interpreting Three Rivers Five along the lines that the Singapore court has done in Scandinavisca, and we invited the Court of Appeal to find that that orthodox interpretation of Three Rivers Five was wrong, and that legal advice privilege should also apply to communications with someone who is authorised not only to receive or give legal advice, but someone who's authorised by the client to provide information to the lawyer. And as I say, it felt as though the Court of Appeal there came very close, but ultimately they declined that invitation and said that they were bound by that orthodox interpretation. Having said that, they went pretty far in saying why they thought uh, it was wrong and time effectively for it to be reconsidered, setting out all the policy reasons as to why it's effectively unfair for corporates to be subject to this rule. So that's where we were left at the Court of Appeal in ENRC, giving anyone who should want to take the point further uh, a fair wind behind them with this powerful judgment, a judgment of the court, but given by the Chancellor, Sir Geoffrey Voss. The issue was dealt with in the next case you mentioned, Rebecca, in JET 2, in which I appeared on the appeal. 
And it's interesting, actually, it was mentioned because the client issue didn't actually come up in that case at all. I think we're going to come on to discuss that in a little while, because really it's a case about the dominant purpose test for legal advice privilege. But interestingly, because the Court of Appeal in that case looked at ENRC on this issue of whether legal advice privilege is subject to a dominant purpose test, in passing, they quoted those parts of the judgment, particularly the, the part which dealt with why this orthodox interpretation is very harsh on, on corporates and said, well, we agree with what the Court of Appeal has said in ENRC about the client issue, notwithstanding, as I say, that the point didn't arise really in JET2 at all. But it obviously gives, again, a litigant who wants to take this point further. Now they can say there are two Court of Appeal judgments doubting whether this should really continue to be the law on this aspect of legal advice privilege. I think you've both hinted um, at this, but the position as it's been left following those decisions is widely viewed as unsatisfactory, at least for larger corporate entities. And can I ask what your views are on that, Tamara? Perhaps if I ask you first and then bank him the same question. Yes, I mean, I don't think this is very controversial. I think the whole legal profession thinks this, but it is highly unsatisfactory. It undermines the rationale of legal advice privilege. Effectively, if lawyers can't give straightforward assurances that what they're going to be told by the people in the corporate organization, the employees, that that's going to be kept confidential, then there's a risk that the relevant information isn't communicated to the lawyers for them to give the advice. And the reason it puts, just to to state the point expressly, although I'm sure listeners will be completely, this is bread and butter for them, this puts corporations at a huge disadvantage because the corporation doesn't have a sort of independent voice. It operates through its employees. So the only way the lawyer can get hold of the information to give the corporate the advice is to speak to the individuals in question. And it obviously means the larger the organization, you know, in a, in a sense, the more disadvantaged, because in a small organization, it may be the case that the person who is authorized to seek the legal advice is also the person who's in possession of the relevant information. So it's particularly, I suppose, in this growth of large corporations and how they operate that this becomes very unfair and, you know, puts corporates at a distinct disadvantage when compared to individuals. And I think there's, just to finish, there's a sort of double whammy now. We're going to come on to dominant purpose, but now we have a narrow client definition and we are now subject to a dominant purpose test. And sort of it's the worst of all worlds, at least in those jurisdictions where they've decided to have a dominant purpose test, they've got a much wider definition of client. But we seem to be you know, restricted in both respects for the time being. Thank you. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Tamara's covered pretty comprehensively the dissatisfaction of the legal profession generally with, with the test, whichever side of the debate you're on. And there are still some adherence to three of us five who think that legal advice privilege is a kind of out of control beast and needs to be controlled in any way imaginable, but they're probably a pretty small minority. And for the reasons Tamara gives, this operates pretty unfairly to corporates, particularly large corporates, which is a point that Sir Geoffrey Voss was keen to emphasise in, in ENRC, and multinationals in, in even more so. And the unsatisfactory nature of the test we're currently labouring under was, was shown 
Really, in the years after Three Rivers Fire, people were trying to engineer all sorts of artificial devices to try and recreate, say, companies equivalent to the Bingham Inquiry unit within the company, um, to have these kind of bubbles within companies which would be responsible for instructing lawyers. And then companies were were trying to engineer a situation where relevant factual witnesses were included within the instructing bubble. I mean, it's all horribly artificial. And to my mind, it just underlines why Three Rivers Five is unsatisfactory and, and, and ripe for reconsideration. Sorry, overdue for reconsideration. In terms of reconsideration, and as you both mentioned, ENRC and JET2 have effectively invited further consideration of this issue by the Supreme Court. Do either of you think that there's any prospect of that actually happening anytime soon? Well, tomorrow it's not going to happen in the JET2 case, is it? So I understand that the CAA decided not to appeal. Despite my best efforts. (laughs) Now tomorrow is venturing into privileged areas. But I don't know, Rebecca, is the answer. Privilege issues, they seem to come up in odd places. And really, for a privilege issue to raise its head, it requires a situation to occur where the other side to the privilege analysis gets a peek beneath the veil, as it were, of of the privilege situation and and can find some lacuna which allows them to pick, pick away at it and bring it before the court. So whether a suitable case comes before the court or not, I don't know. I imagine at some point in the next four or five years, something will come up, but it's been quite a long time waiting, but it has never had a better springboard with the NRC and JET2 decided in the last couple of years for that reconsideration to occur. I guess I would just add, I'm sure Banking will be the first person to know because I'm sure he will be taking the point up there. And I suppose the other point to make is that it wouldn't necessarily be a long journey because I think the likelihood is if following a first instance decision, which would obviously be bound by these Court of Appeal decisions, it's very likely that a judge would then grant a leapfrog certificate, as indeed Mr Justice Hildyard did, I think, in the RBS rights issue litigation when it looked like that was going to be the case where we would have this decided and and then that case settled. So that might mean that the right litigant might be persuaded, have the right appetite. It wouldn't necessarily have to be dragged on for years because it could go straight to the Supreme Court. Okay, so moving away from the client question and on to another issue, which was considered in Three Rivers Five, ENRC and JET2, and which um, Tamara, you've already mentioned. I want to ask uh, you about the question about whether there's a dominant purpose test for legal advice privilege. It's well established that legal advice privilege applies in respect of communications between client and lawyer for the purpose of seeking or providing legal advice. This question is whether there is an additional requirement that that purpose must be the dominant purpose behind the particular communication. For example, as it is in litigation privilege, where it's a requirement that the relevant communication must be made for the dominant purpose of litigation. Tamara, could you tell us where we are at on this dominant purpose test for legal advice privilege following the Court of Appeals decision in JET 2? Yes, sure. So just to explain briefly what JET 2 was about, it was a judicial review claim in which JET 2 were challenging the decision of the CAA to publish a press release about JET 2's refusal to participate in a new ADR scheme, which had been proposed for the aviation industry, and also the Civil Aviation Authority's decision to publish correspondence between itself and JET 2 about that press release. 
And the issue arose because Jet2 made an application for disclosure and they also sought disclosure of internal documents at the CAA in relation to the drafting of the letter that um, the CAA had written to Jet2 in response to its complaint about the press release. And this issue of dominant purpose arose because of the involvement in that um, drafting process of the in-house lawyers. There were effectively communications, internal communications at the CAA with drafts passing between individuals, uh, including lawyers, but they weren't exclusively between client at the CAA and lawyer. Now, this issue, actually, it's it's surprising that this was, in a way, the first decision to grapple head on because this issue arises every day in every in-house lawyer's practice, I think, that you have email communications which have a number of people on them, only one of whom is the lawyer. These have been come to be known as multi-addressee communications. And the textbooks considered the issue about how you apply legal advice privilege in those situations. Notably, Charles Hollander and his book spent a, quite a bit of time considering the issue. But there had been, before Jet2, as far as I'm aware, no direct authority on it. So this was the first case where it was really addressed as to what you do in that situation. Now, there were effectively two key findings made by Mr. Justice Morris, which were subsequently upheld by the Court of Appeal. And the two findings were these. First of all, the finding, which again was rather surprising, that legal advice privilege is subject to a dominant purpose test. That was particularly surprising, I think, at first instance that Mr. Justice Morris found that because the issue had actually come up in ENRC, which we were just discussing earlier, because the SFO had argued that as an alternative case there. And there had actually been some time spent during the hearing, as all three of us will recall, about discussing that point. And the Court of Appeal dealt with the issue very briefly in their judgment. I think Sir Geoffrey Foss just thought it was just wrong, so dealt with it in a fairly brief way. And Mr. Justice Morris, when that hit, he was taken to that passage, just said, well, it's obiter and it was you know, specific to that case and doesn't, you know, I can ignore it effectively. So that was the first part of his decision. He said legal advice privilege is subject to a dominant purpose test. And he then went on to consider what you do about multi-addressee communications applying a dominant purpose test. And there he said you, you take effectively a two-stage approach. You consider what is the dominant purpose of that multi-addressee email. If its dominant purpose was to seek legal advice, then fine, it's privileged. If you cannot infer that that is the dominant purpose of the email, then you have to go to the second stage, which is, does that email disclose or is it likely to disclose the nature and content of the legal advice that's being sought? So if it's a, an email that has a sort of dual purpose, neither of which can be said to be dominant, if there's something in that email that's likely to disclose the nature and content of the legal advice sought, well, fine, you can claim privilege. But if it doesn't, then you cannot, and the email is not privileged. And as I say, the Court of Appeal, which is a stage at which I got involved, effectively endorsed the approach that Mr. Justice Morris had suggested and went into a greater detail in looking in the authorities. Again, you know, we are where we are now, but I still do find it a very surprising decision, surprising that the Court of Appeal in Jet 2 thought that the House of Lords in Three Rivers Six had accepted that the dominant purpose test applied to legal advice privilege. It's, quite, I think, quite a curious reading of that case. 
Anyway, for the moment, that is where we are. The Court of Appeal have said there is a dominant purpose test for legal advice privilege. And then we now have at least some guidance as, as to how you apply that in the case of multi-addressee communications. But I do wonder whether it's one of those decisions where they sort of work backwards. There is a problem with multi-addressee communications about what you do with them, which is a point that in Bankim's book is we make anyway. And I think that having a dominant purpose test is a way of dealing with those kind of communications. But it seemed to me that it was a slightly backward how that case you know, has resulted in a decision that we now have a dominant purpose test for legal advice privilege. Well, it's obviously a, a question that can be debated at a theoretical or abstract level, but I wonder whether it makes a lot of practical difference. Do you actually think that having a dominant purpose test makes a practical difference to the application of legal advice privilege? And I ask that partly because in the ENRC case, my understanding of what the Court of Appeal had said was partly that they didn't think that it really mattered. Uh, as Tamara said, the, the, the textbook on the, the law of privilege did suggest the use of the dominant purpose test, but in quite a a narrow way, which was looking at multi-addressee communications, ascertaining the dominant purpose, but to see whether it therefore qualified as a lawyer-client communication or not. And this was to deal with the problem of people just routinely copying in lawyers and then asserting privilege over a multi-addressee communication. So it was in that narrow sense that we had suggested in the book before JET2 that the dominant purpose test might be applied to um, sort out which multi-addressee communications were genuinely lawyer-client communications and which were not. What is really interesting about JET2 is the Court of Appeal way, went way further than they needed to do. And as Tamara says, they engage in quite a deep analysis of the authorities. And I have to say, I don't think their interpretation of the House of Lords in Three Rivers Six is correct. I think Sir Geoffrey Voss's analysis was correct in ENRC as to whether um, the dominant purpose test applied or not. And just by way of background, the dominant purpose test was something which in Three Rivers Five we'd run at first instance um, as applying across the board to litigation privilege and legal advice privilege. And that had succeeded in front of Mr Justice Tomlinson based on the decision of the House of Lords in War and British Railways Board. And really in the House of Lords, the Court of Appeal rejected that argument. And in the House of Lords, Jonathan Sumption, who led me in, in the House of Lords, took the view that there wasn't really any practical purpose for the dominant purpose test when you're talking about lawyer-client communications to which legal advice privilege applies. So in a sense, the Court of Appeal in JET to has gone back to where Mr Justice Tomlinson started in Three Rivers 5 in applying a dominant purpose test across both limbs of privilege with the unpleasant dogleg, as it were, of the client point in Three Rivers 5, which does the, dom the application of dominant purpose test by the Court of Appeal actually underlines even more why the client point um, needs to be sorted out. Because applying the dominant purpose test to litigation privilege and legal advice privilege is perfectly coherent and logical and other jurisdictions like Hong Kong have done that. But with the client point added on top, it becomes a bit of an incoherent mess, I'm afraid. Rebecca, I think you said, can it make a difference or is this all at quite an abstract theoretical level? I think, yes, it can make a difference for those multi-addressee communications because 
having a dominant purpose test can effectively cut down the Balabel continuum of communications because there might be communications which under a orthodox three river six approach could be said to have a relevant legal context and form part of the continuum between lawyer and client but now will no longer be protected because they can't be said to meet the dominant purpose test now except they're probably going to be the more they could be the more anodyne communications because if something really reveals something important about legal advice sought or given then it's likely to be caught by the tests that that we now have following jet 2 but even so it does it does cut down i think the protection of legal advice privilege from where we were previously i think the other problem with the decision is that it leaves one with quite a lot of ambiguity as to how you apply the test in practice and the reason i say that is because i think the court of appeal in response to some of the points that we were making uh, on behalf of the CAA sort of put on some glosses to that two-stage approach, which I just outlined to alleviate the inroads into Three Rivers Six. So for example, they said that there might be cases where the legal and the non-legal purposes might be so intermingled that distinguishing the two is for all practices impossible. So you can just say that the dominant purpose of the document as a whole is giving or seeking legal advice. That doesn't seem to me particularly principled. It's a bit of a fudge. And the other thing they said was, well, you you must consider emails in their context. And it may not be necessarily the right approach in a long email chain, for example, to look just at an in the all each email is a separate communication you might need to look at the chain and look at them in their broader context so you have this interesting expression in the middle of the judgment at i think it's around paragraph 100 where the court of appeal said that if that a communication to a lawyer will be privileged if its dominant purpose is in substance to settle instructions to the lawyer even if that communication is sent to the lawyer himself or herself by way of information, or if it is part of a rolling series of communications with a dominant purpose of instructing the lawyer. Now, I read that, and I think that was the context of the, when we were discussing it at the hearing, was that if you have a long chain and the, if you looked at every email individually, would it be possible to say that that particular e- email in that chain satisfied the test? But overall, looking at the chain in context, the whole dominant purpose of it is instruct, to instruct the lawyer. Well, then you can claim privilege over the whole. Uh, it, it, we made an analogy during the hearing about, well, what, you know, it's it's equivalent to being in a meeting with a lawyer. And it may not be that every word that passes can be said to fulfill the test, but the whole purpose of the meeting as a whole was clear. So I think that's why those glosses were added by the Court of Appeal. But it makes it pretty difficult if you're the lawyer, uh, the junior lawyer tasked with going through and working out whether something is privileged as to what you do when you have those very typical long email chains. You know, when is it right to say, well, you look at the whole chain as a whole? And when is it right to say, no, no, you need to look at this particular email as an individual communication? So I think it's, you know, it creates a whole lot of other problems and we'll have to see. No doubt there'll be further clarification in due course. Thanks, both of you. Moving on from the test for legal advice privilege, I'd just like to ask you both about another topic in the law of privilege, which has received judicial attention recently, which is the issue of waiver of privilege. Uh, And in particular, tricky waiver issues can arise, and I think increasingly do arise, in situations where there are multiple sets of proceedings. So either proceedings running concurrently or in succession. 
and where privileged documents emerge in one set of proceedings which are potentially relevant to the other. So, for example, in the recent privilege dispute which arose in PCP and Barclays, which I was involved in, Barclays had originally provided privileged documents to the SFO in the course of a criminal investigation by the SFO. The SFO then deployed some of those privileged documents in criminal proceedings against certain Barclays executives or former executives. And as a result of that, the documents which had been deployed lost confidentiality and lost privilege. And those documents were then provided to PCP so that they were available for use by PCP in its civil litigation against Barclays. And Barclays then relied on some of those documents in the civil litigation against PCP. The question then arose whether Barclays' use of those documents, uh, which were no longer privileged at the time, Barclays used them in the civil litigation because they had lost confidentiality in the earlier criminal proceedings, could give rise to a collateral waiver of privilege over a wider set of Barclays' privileged documents. It's well established that in order for collateral waiver to occur, there must be an initial waiver. So a key question was, if the documents deployed by Barclays in its litigation against PCP were not privileged at the time of deployment because they had lost confidentiality and therefore had lost privilege in earlier proceedings, could that amount to waiver by Barclays and therefore a collateral waiver over other privileged material? And the judge found that there had been a waiver and a collateral waiver in those circumstances. I just wanted to ask you, Tamara, what you make of that particular decision. Okay, well, I, can I just preface what I'm going to say by, by noting, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, that Mr. Justice Waxman produced that complicated privilege decision extremely quickly. As I read, the, the judgment was delivered on the same day as the hearing. Is that right? I think it was delivered after a weekend. After a weekend, yes, very yeah. quickly indeed. So it's very easy to sit back and, and critique it now. I think it's quite impressive to have dealt with such wide-ranging issues in such a short time. Having said that, now, now let me say what I don't like about it. So two aspects of the decision, I think there were others, but these are the two main. There was first the issue dealing with whether there had been waiver and legal advice at all through reference in Barclays witness statements. And then the second issue, if that first point had been decided in PCP's favour that Barclays had actually waived privilege over their legal advice, whether there had then been a collateral waiver. So that first issue concerned whether references in the witness statements to Barclays having acted on legal advice constituted a waiver of that advice. And Mr. Justice Waxman held that it did. I don't think that part of the decision is hugely controversial. I know, Rebecca, you probably have much you know, a better view on whether all the points were considered there in that judgment. But I think he was right to say that this distinction that is drawn in the authorities between reliance on effective legal advice and reliance on contents and trying to draw a distinction between the two is quite elusive. And he said you couldn't apply that distinction mechanistically. And I, th I think one has sympathy with that and the result that he reached. Now, the difficulty, I think, the con really controversial bit is the second part of his decision dealing with the collateral waiver point that you referred to. And in particular, his view that there could be a collateral waiver in circumstances where those, if I can call them those anchor documents in question, those found to have been relied upon by Barclays, had, had lost their confidentiality, completely lost them because they've been read out in open court at a trial. So it's a, a very singular situation. But the point about those documents 
they'd been provided by Barclays, as you said, in the course of its criminal investigation under limited waiver. They were then deployed by the SFO at its choice in the criminal trial, completely lost their confidentiality. So one think can fairly ask, how can you have a collateral waiver when the anchor documents have lost confidentiality so comprehensively and therefore can no longer be privileged? I think, uh, as recorded in the judgment, there is some support for the argument that you can waive privilege in two stages so that you have, to some extent, some loss of privilege when a document is provided for inspection, but you can still have a collateral waiver when that document is actually deployed. And that's fine. But I think those cases are very different to the PCP situation because the loss of privilege in that case wasn't caused by anything Barclays did, but by the SFO using those documents provided to them under the limited waiver in the criminal trial. And there has, I I think, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, Rebecca, been no case to date where a document loses privilege in other proceedings quite outside the privilege holder's control, but nevertheless, the privilege holder is held to have generated a collateral waiver. Now, the judge addressed that by saying Barclays were effectively responsible for the loss of privilege because they had provided these documents under a limited waiver. I think he says Barclays gave a limited waiver in the full knowledge that some or all would see the light of day at trial. So it can hardly be said that Barclays had nothing to do with the deployment of the open documents. That does seem a huge inroad into the principle and rationale of limited waiver and has, I think, serious implications for corporates in the future about thinking whether they really want to provide documents under a limited waiver to regulators in the future, given what might happen in parallel civil proceedings. We've, I think, felt always fairly confident now in this jurisdiction that the doctrine of limited waiver is secure and well-established, albeit doesn't exist in that same way in other jurisdictions, notably in the US. But this does present some challenges and I think concerns. So it's um, a harsh decision, I'd say. You know, if you go back to the words of the language used for collateral waiver cases about trying to stop cherry picking, there's an argument that it wasn't Barclays that did the cherry picking here, it was the SFO. Can I just end with one thought on this decision? Perhaps another explanation of where the judge might have been coming from, albeit I accept it wasn't articulated in this way in the judgment, is a sort of sense that Barclays was placing so much reliance on the legal advice it had received as a key plank of its defence in this litigation, that it was in some sense unfair for only part of that legal advice to be available to PCP. So that effectively, the judge was coming from a place where he felt that all of the advice concerning or relevant to these advisory services agreements should be disclosed. That kind of argument, I think, starts to look very similar to what has been termed material fact waiver. That's the notion that a party, by putting something in issue in proceedings, is deemed to have waived privilege in respect of documents that are relevant to that matter. It's an argument that from time to time raises its its head. I'd like to say its ugly head, because it's not, as far as I'm aware, part of the English law of privilege, although it does still appear to sometimes arise, or at least there's some some residual appetite in some quarters of the judiciary for it. The reason I say it doesn't, it's not part of English law, is it's been pretty definitively rejected, albeit uh, at fir- in first instance decisions, most expressly. So Mr. Justice Ramsey in the pharmacist case made the point that it 
it could be said that privileged legal advice might be relevant in establishing an issue and that in this way privileged material could be said to be put in issue but that's not the approach taken in English law and that was uh, that approach was followed in the Digicel case a decision of Mr Justice Morgan I think again there's a case of uh, Mr Justice Nugy and Glennon Watson which again repeats that so the majority of decisions have made clear that it isn't part of English law. That said, as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, it does from time to time seem to raise its ugly head. And in part of the PAG litigation, there's a decision of Mr. Justice Burse sort of reviving the idea, this idea of a material fact type waiver. That was in the context of RBS. He said RBS in, in, in that case had waived privilege in its communications with regulators concerning the settling of sterling libel simply by asserting in its defence in, in that claim the fact that there'd been no regulatory findings of misconduct by RBS. And Mr Justice Burst said that by repeating that in their defence, RBS had put in issue the basis on which the regulatory findings were made and as such had waived privilege. No authority for that, and it's contrary to those decisions that I just cited. Now, the reason I've sort of finished with this, because I think it, it does sort of sometimes seem to creep back or it's uh, intimated in, in various decisions. And I was interested to read the Court of Appeal decision in Refison in January this year, which wasn't on this point, but there's a little bit in the judgment that sort of leapt out to me and gave me some concern. Uh, that was a case that concerned the question of whether legal advice privilege over a client's instructions to its lawyers is lost where the client authorises the lawyers to repeat the substance of those instructions. It was in the course of a financial transaction. The details probably don't matter very much for these purposes. But that, that was the issue. And the Court of Appeal said, no, legal advice privilege isn't lost where a client authorises the lawyer to repeat the substance of those instructions. And during the course of that decision, there was quite a lot of discussion about a fairly old case now, Conlon and Conlon's case from 1952. But the reason that was discussed at some length was because Refison relied on it as authority for the proposition that privilege didn't extend to a communication which the client had instructed the solicitor to repeat. And the way the Court of Appeal dealt with that decision in, in that case was they said, well, the reason they effectively adopted an interpretation that the Australians had taken, that saying that legal advice privilege over solicitor-client communications will only be waived if the client puts the content of the communications in issue. Again, that sounds to me like a material fact waiver. So we now have something, albeit in a different context, in a Court of Appeal judgment hinting that there might be able to be some sort of waiver in this sense. As I say, I'll come back. I don't believe that's part of our law. The only implied waiver we have under English law is a very narrow implied waiver in the context of a former client suing their solicitor as in Paragon Finance and Freshfields, which, um, of course, was another of Bankham's case. So with that uh, cases. So with that, shall I perhaps turn to him for his thoughts? Yeah, just on Mr. Justice Waxman's decision. I don't think he really wanted his decision to be particularly authoritative, but rather to be confined to his facts. And the, the whole discussion of the effect contents distinction and the fact that it shouldn't be applied mechanistically was his way, Mr. Justice Waxman's way, I think, of saying that it's a very fact-sensitive assessment. 
And it would certainly be quite hard to discern a, a ratio which you could follow and put into practice as a result of his decision in the, in the PCP case. So I'm not sure he intended it to be followed, though inevitably people will try and pick over it and, and try and follow it. I think he tried, he, he wanted it to be confined, it to be confined to its facts. The area where I think material fact waiver perhaps ought to be considered quite seriously as a doctrine is in the context of without prejudice privilege. It does seem to me that there'll be far more justification in that context where a party puts something in issue and the other party doesn't uh, assert WP privilege, that the party can't put a relevant fact in issue towards which WP material goes and then try and hide behind the WP if the other party doesn't seek to assert WP. So that's a context where I think material fact waiver ought to apply, but not in the context of legal professional privilege. The only thing I'd add to Tamara's analysis is this real, it's a really a footnote point, but in terms of the whole concept of cherry picking and waiver, it's important to bear in mind the limited context in which waiver ought to be applicable. I think all of us quite often are asked to advise about whether a particular party has waived privilege by referring to something in correspondence, for example. And I think the better view is that expressed by Mr. Justice Etherton, as he then was in a case called Raymac Holdings, where he basically said that the waiver won't arise unless you um, try to deploy a privileged material. And that, that means basically deploy it in court, either in evidence or, or orally in, in court. So that this whole concept of, of waiver ought to be fairly limited to deployment in effectively either in court or very closely associated with, with court proceedings and shouldn't have a wider application. Well, I think you can cherry pick, for example, in correspondence or whatever. It might have less force if you try and do so. Um, yeah, but um, it should be confined to deployment in or closely associated with court. That's all I wanted to add. Thank you. I think we've nearly reached the end of our time. But a final question before we conclude. Uh, could I just ask each of you briefly whether you think that there are any recent or emerging trends in the law of privilege which might be relevant for example, when a party is considering how the court might approach a novel question uh, in the area of privilege. Uh, Tamara, do you want to go first? I'm not sure I can discern a, a pattern or a trend. Is it cheeky for me to say Bankham's been around a little longer, so he might be able to discern, <laughs> discern one? I think there are some decisions which have taken a strong position. I mean, strong in terms of the inviolable nature of privilege. So we've got one of the Sports Direct decisions that you were involved in, Rebecca, FRC and Sports Direct, the, the judgment of the Court of Appeal there about there being the no infringement principle, the Adelsey and Denton's case recently. I think that was the judgment of Mr. Justice Lewison. But then you've got other decisions like WH Holding and E20 on litigation privilege, which seem to sort of cut down the scope of litigation privilege following ENRC. So you, I can't discern any particular pattern. I wonder whether this is an area, perhaps even more than others, where particular approaches and views of judges are likely to have 
you know, more impact and one looks anxiously when you have a privileged case to see who you're drawing as your tribunal. I think the difficulty as well is that it's such a case-heavy area of the law and so many of the concepts, as we've been discussing today, interlink. And the Court of Appeal particularly have so little time when they're looking at these cases. They're often dealing with quite complicated issues, you know, absolutely dozens and dozens of cases and don't necessarily have the overview to see how their decision in one area impacts upon another. And so you you know, sometimes get what we, those of us who like to sit boring over these decisions, you know, think, well, that's not very good. That's not very consistent with another part. But I think it's partly the nature of the law of privilege and why it makes it so interesting practicing in it. Yeah, I mean, picking up on the point Tamara just made, I think one of the one of the, the things which quite often guide decisions is which end of the telescope the judge starts from and whether he or she is pro-privilege or hostile to privilege and people do tend to have intellectual starting points on this so in three rivers five we had diametrically opposing approaches so we had lord justice or master of the roles lord justice phillips in three rivers five who took quite a skeptical view of privilege and asked in asked in discussion well why is the bank of england asserting privilege at all it was a public body isn't it distasteful that it should assert privilege when uh, it was facing a public inquiry? So that was the end of the telescope he started from, whereas Mr. Justice Tomlinson, first instance, basically thought privilege was a good thing and wasn't something which was a cloak um, for nefarious activities, but was basically something which encouraged proper dialogue with between client and lawyer. So one does, as Tamara says, scan anxiously what a judge's attitude is when when you land a particular court for a hearing. In terms of trends, I think the Sports Direct case that you were involved in, Rebecca, is going to be quite interesting. It's going to present quite a minefield for regulators because you you have quite a hard-nosed approach to privilege. The way that regulators have operated over the years, I mean, for example, uh, in the solicitor's regulatory sphere, is really a fudge. So people navigate around um, the fact that the documents that are, are being read by the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal and so on are quite often privileged, and the privilege doesn't belong to the party that's being investigated or prosecuted. And the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal has just over the years developed a practice, which is to navigate around that problem and try and avoid reading out documents into the record Parties tend not to refer to the contents of documents. All sorts of fudges which are designed to navigate the way around the fact that privilege hasn't been waived and it's not the solicitor's privilege to waive. And I think the Sports Direct decision is going to present quite a lot of practical problems for regulators. So that's one area which I think is worth watching. And I think the whole multi-addressee topic thrown up by Jet2 because you will inevitably see documents which see the light of day to the opposing party, the party not giving disclosure, you will have the opportunity for challenges to the approach taken to privilege and disclosure. So I can see that as being quite a fertile area for dispute um, going forward. Otherwise, it's hard to discern particular trends or gaze into the crystal ball, as it were. Just one final question for you both, which is something we like to ask all of our podcast participants it's this. What would you have been if you hadn't been a lawyer? Bankim, what's your answer to that one? Well, I came very close to doing a doctorate in, in history and was dissuaded at the last minute by my tutor at Oxford. 
And I think what I would have liked to have done, but for the financial consequences, would have been to have become a history academic teaching at university. So that's my answer to your question. And Tamara? May I have two? So the first is not really very serious, but, you know, if I'd had the talent, I would have quite liked to have been an opera singer. But I think, you know, I have to be realistic and I'm not sure how nice a life it is. I was listening to Jenny Murray's Last Woman's Hour the other week, which was a brilliant listen for anyone who, who wants another different kind of podcast to listen to. And it made me think being an interviewer like her and some of the people she's interviewed uh, would be fantastic. And maybe that's something that I would have liked to have done. Well, thank you. And thank you both for all of your answers, which has been really illuminating. So thanks very much. So there you have it. Plenty of food for thought in that episode. And we can expect these issues to be explored further as privileged disputes continue to come before the courts at all levels. I'm very grateful to our panellists for taking the time to join me and for sharing their wealth of experience with us. So thank you again to Bank and Thank QC and Tamara Oppenheimer QC. Thank you for listening. And I hope that you will join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast.